around Jesus tonight. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, God, we are asking you, would you please give us fresh eyes to see? Lord, may we see this story like it's the first time we've ever seen it. May the truths come alive in our heart. Lord, we've just sung about the fact that you are the undefeated one. God, may we see you that way today through the word. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're in Ephesians chapter 2, just know we are studying the truths that are focused on the redemptive story of God. And this is a story that is confusing to a lot of people because the context as well as the key pieces are not always clearly presented within the church. Uh, many times people feel like they showed up to church like 30 minutes late to a movie theater. They're hearing about characters and about stories and about lands and they're hearing about the exploits of what people did and there's lessons from Jesus one week and there is wisdom from Solomon the next week and there's poetry from David the following week and then there's instruction and encouragement from Paul and James and Peter and, and they have it all together and it's all good and it's all biblical and it's all important, but many times the pieces have not been connected together so that people understand the bigger redemptive story of God. So that's why I want us to take our time with this particular text. Even if you grew up in church, there's a really good chance that you're still confused in pieces about the redemptive story of God. For those people who did not have an opportunity to grow up in church and they just found themselves in a church in 2023 and they're trying to get the pieces together, I don't want people to be lost in the most important story they will ever hear, the story that changes lives, the story that God has been telling since the beginning of time and the story that is made clear in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So Ephesians chapter 2, it contains some of the most important elements of this redemptive story of God. And these are pieces that paint the picture from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. The truths that we encounter in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 are those that help show the condition that God found us in, the reason we were lost and in need of a Savior the wonders of God's mindset toward us, the depth of what God has done on our behalf, as well as the framework of what God wants our future to look like. I cannot, cannot, cannot overemphasize the theological and practical importance of verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. So as I said this last week, we are building two parallel rails for the train of the gospel. The first rail is going to be the big picture of what God has been doing, the, the story of redemption that unfolds over the course of the entire Bible. The second rail is going to be the individual truths from Ephesians 2 that impact that big story and help us understand the story with more depth. So if you're not already there, look with me once again, Ephesians chapter number two, and we're gonna be in verses one through three. I am speaking tonight on redemption and spiritual death. Redemption and spiritual death. Here's what it says. Chapter two, verse one and following. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we're asking that your spirit guide us into truth. May we see the word the way you intended. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we shared this last week, as chapter 1 ends, it's describing the realm of God's power. As chapter 2 begins, it describes the necessity of God's power. And it tells us why his power is a necessity in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That one statement is a huge piece about the redemptive story of God. So here's the key truth that we're unpacking for multiple weeks on end. Humanity is separated from God by sin and incapable of reconciling the relationship. Once again, here it is. Humanity is separated from God by sin and incapable of reconciling the relationship. This truth does not first appear in the book of Ephesians. This is a truth that is traced all the way back into the book of Genesis. The very beginning helps us understand how that separation occurred. But now when we get into chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul uses three different descriptions to show why humanity is relationally separated from God and spiritually dead. And this is so important for us to see. If we miss this piece, many times we think that we can somehow figure God out. We think that somehow we can save ourselves at the right time. If we just pray a prayer, if we do this, then, then it's going to work out. But when we see the state that God found us in, we recognize there was no way we could do anything on our behalf. It has to be because of the grace and the mercy that comes from God. So last week, we addressed the first of these descriptions. Apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Here's a five-minute review. Apart from Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sin. Spiritual separation is the result of spiritual death. Spiritual death, it means that a person is unresponsive to God. They are unresponsive to the ways of God, the truths of that God. They can do nothing to incline themselves towards God, and they can also do nothing to appease God's righteous standard. They are spiritually dead. Now, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 is a wonderful passage to help us understand the connection between sin, spiritual death, and separation. The passage says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. The one man that is being represented there, spoken of there, that is Adam. And it traces us back into the book of Genesis. So here's the context of that. Before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God told them the consequences that would come with their rebellion. They had unbelievable freedom. They, they were allowed to eat of any of the trees of the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told them, on the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now, when they sinned and disobeyed God, they did not die physically on that day. They died spiritually on that day. They were separated relationally from God. They were created for a relationship, sin separated the relationship. That's a huge piece of the redemptive story of God. So last week, I showed how that particular moment impacted us. 
and I drew you all three different stick figures on a little board, and there was one that represented you, and one represented your dad, and one who represented your granddad. And I talked about the fact that we understand that physical death prior to conception cuts off the possibility of any future life. In other words, if your dad died before you were born or conceived, you would not have had an opportunity at life. If your granddad died before your dad was conceived, then your dad and you would not have the possibility of life. Okay, we understand that in a physical sense. The same is also true in a spiritual sense. When our great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, died spiritually, everyone born of the seed of man after him is born spiritually dead. Adam's spiritual death cut off our initial chance at spiritual life. And just as parents pass on their DNA and their attributes and their mannerisms to their children, our great-grandfather on that, Adam, passed on his sinful nature, his attributes to us. As a result of that, Scripture says that all have sinned. We followed in the footsteps of the one who came before us. So how does Jesus fit into this entire story? If you'll remember, Jesus was not born of the seed of man. He was born of the Holy Spirit. It's the virgin birth. He was not under the curse of sin as we are. As a result of that, he could do what we could not do. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He rose from the grave three days later that we might experience life. And he offers eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in him. And when that happens, Jesus says, John chapter 3, that person is born again. And that, that's key. It's not just a description for people. It's describing a part of this redemptive story. At our first birth, we're born physically into Adam under the curse of sin. At our second birth, we are born spiritually into Christ under the covenant of grace. Adam was the first man. Jesus is the second man. Adam brought death. Jesus brings life. Adam brought separation. Jesus brings reconciliation. That's why a person has to be born again. Now, the redemptive story tells us humanity is separated from God by sin and incapable of reconciling that relationship ourselves. Now, the Apostle Paul is helping us understand how impossible that is for us to do. He tells us that you were dead in trespasses and sin. We talked about those two words. Trespasses means slip or fall. It's a word used of a person straying from the path, straying from the truth. And sin means miss the mark. It is a visual picture of somebody shooting arrows at the target and their arrows constantly falling short. According to scripture, it tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The central idea that Paul is bringing out in these verses is that we've all lost our way. We've all veered from God's path of righteousness. We have all shot our arrows of effort at the target of God's perfection. And all of our arrows have fallen short of his glorious standard. Apart from Christ, humanity is dead in trespasses and sins. That now brings us to the next piece. Apart from Christ, Humanity is alive 
to the lust of the flesh. One part is dead, another part is fully alive. Prior to Christ, our our spirit is dead. It is unable to respond to God's ways. But our sin nature is alive. It is unable to resist Satan's influence. If you remember, the Apostle Paul is talking to believers in this letter to the Ephesians. That is, these are people who have repented of their sin. They've placed faith in Christ. They are followers of Christ. But to help them understand what they have in Christ and who they are now in Christ, he's taking them back on memory lane and he's telling them, this is what you were like when Jesus found you. So look in verse number two and following. It says, in which you formerly walked. That is formerly. This is, this is before Christ. You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, there are two phrases that help us set the context here. Formerly walked and formerly lived. Each of those two words, walked and lived, are used in Scripture to describe continuous, repetitive course of action. Prior to Christ, we lived in disobedience. We walked according to the lust of the flesh. It was not an occasional slip. It was not just a minor issue. It was the continual, habitual, ongoing pattern of our life. That is what defined us. Paul called us sons of disobedience, which makes sense. It's a fitting description based upon the original problem and who our great-great-great-grandfather was. It's Adam, that sin nature that had been passed down to each of us. We acted like sons of Adam. We acted in rebellion and in disobedience. And again, it wasn't an occasional problem. It's how we lived. It's how we walked. It was a continual course of action. So now in verses 2 through 3, there are three forces that encourage disobedience to this very day. It's the world, it's the devil, and it's the flesh. And all three are mentioned in these verses. Let's talk about the first, it's the world. Verse number two, it tells us we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the standard of the world, basically the system of the world. It means that our life prior to Christ was greatly influenced by the standards of what was happening in the world around us. Now, that does not mean that society is always wrong. It simply means that there are times that society's values and society's ways are different than God's values and God's ways. We can see that in so many different areas. Uh, For example, God teaches us that we are to forgive and leave vengeance to him. And yet society encourages us to forgive to an extent, but after that, you've got to get you some retribution. The Word of God teaches us that meekness is a virtue. And society often sees meekness as a vice. Jesus taught that we are to trust him and he will provide for all of our needs. The world teaches self-reliance and you have to get what is yours. The Bible teaches us that we are to pursue holiness. The world encourages people to pursue happiness. 
There's, there's a number of ways in which the values and the systems of the world are different than God's values and God's systems. And once again, it doesn't mean that society is always wrong on everything. For example, society still values at some level things like love and service and sacrifice and relationships. But listen, many times society defines all of those terms completely different than how God defines them. So even in those areas, a, a perceived value is not always the same thing. It's not always comparing apples and apples. So here's the next piece. The devil, according to verse number two, we all formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, Jesus referred to Satan in John chapter 16, verse 11, as the prince of this world. Uh, the ancients believed that the air was the place of the demonic realm. And people like Pythagoras said the whole air is full of spirits. Philo is the one who said, quote, there are spirits flying everywhere through the air. And the air is the house of the disembodied spirits, end of quote. So the apostle Paul, he combines Jesus's description of Satan with the ancients understanding of the demonic realm in order to make a point. We all formerly walked according to the prince of the power of the air. What that means is we've all been influenced by the one who influences demons. We've all been influenced by Satan in various ways. Just as much as he led a third of angels in rebellion against God. Just as much as he led Adam and Eve in rebellion against their creator. To this day, he is still leading people in rebellion against God. And we see it everywhere around us. And here's the third piece. It's the flesh. So verse 3 tells us, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, according to the desires of the flesh and of the mind. When he talks about the flesh, he's not talking about the physical body, like the skin and bones and, and muscles of the body. He is referring to the sinful habits and traits and tendencies that we developed while living under the sin nature. That sin nature that was passed to us by birth, it was crucified with Jesus on the cross. But listen, habits, traits, and tendencies developed under the sin nature do not go away overnight. There is now an ongoing process of sanctification. Often the battle is now for the mind. It is you are renewing your mind in truth. You're having to see the world from a different perspective, understand how to live from a different perspective. So when we speak of nature, it's referring to the essential character of something, the, the inborn character or disposition. Because of Adam's sin, he passed on a sin nature to us. We now have a natural disposition to sin. Prior to Christ, there's a natural disposition for sin. That is, a person doesn't have to try to sin. They sin based upon the nature they were born with. So think about it like this. A fish swims because it's in its nature to swim. Birds fly because it's within their nature to fly. Dogs bark. It's within their nature to bark. People sin because it's within their nature to sin. However, when a person enters relationship with God through Jesus Christ, they're now given a new nature. The Holy Spirit 
indwells the believer. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4 tells us we are partakers of the divine nature. So now when a Christian sins, it doesn't feel right. It feels wrong. It is uncomfortable. It is unfulfilling. It seems unnatural. And the reason is because it no longer aligns with your nature. There's a new nature on the inside, and there's not that comfort with sin that we once had. So why do Christians continue to sin? The answer comes back between the mind and the flesh. That flesh, it refers to, again, those sinful habits, traits, tendencies that were developed under the sin nature. So consider it to be the remnants of your former life prior to Christ. It's the the residue. It's it's the debris of what was left. So think about it on a, a practical level. Let's say, for example, there's been somebody who has struggled with drug addiction for most of their adult life, and that person gets radically saved by God. When they get saved, they are given a new nature. They are born again. They are reconciled to their creator. Praise God. But unless God does something miraculous in that moment, even after they're saved, they're still going to battle some of the cravings and the addictions and the habits and the tendencies that were developed while living under that sin nature. It also might be that Prior to Christ, maybe somebody struggled with deception and lying and manipulation. They would get into a certain situation when they felt the pressure. The first thing they would do is they would try to lie and manipulate and work their way back out of things. That person can get saved, truly saved. Their nature is new. They are born again. They are a child of God. But unless God does a miraculous delivery of that person, Many times they're going to continue to battle when they get into those moments and they feel pressure. There are the traits that they developed under the sin nature that pop back to the surface. And all of a sudden they find themselves shading the truth and they lie and they try to manipulate the circumstances to to get what they want in that moment. The issue now becomes for believers to see themselves as God sees them, to live according to that new nature in Christ, renew their minds in the truths of God's word, and moment by moment, we submit those things back before God again. We need the gospel to remind us of our constant need to come back before God in this. So, that being said, prior to Christ, each of us, according to the text, lived according to the lust of our flesh. That is, we indulged the desires of the flesh. We indulged the depravity of our mind. Even after a person is saved, they continue to need to bring those things to God. God, I submit my mind to you. If you don't, you can have some most ungodly thoughts pass through your mind three minutes after singing your favorite worship song. You can come right out of the word, and if you're not stayed in a submitted position before God, and you think you can do it yourself, you will find out how quickly the flesh will come right back into your life. That's a part of the process, the sanctification, maturity. Hopefully at this point, you're starting to see why humanity is in a desperate condition. We're spiritually separated from our creator, born with a sin nature that has a natural inclination for disobedience. We are encouraged 
in disobedience by the world that we live in, by the devil that hates us, and by the tendencies we picked up in the sin nature prior to Christ. So our, our big truth, again, of God's redemptive story, humanity separated from God by sin and incapable of reconciling the relationship themselves. Prior to Christ, we're dead in trespasses and sin. Prior to Christ, we are alive to the lust of the flesh. And finally, prior to Christ, we are by nature children of wrath. By nature, children of wrath. In the Old Testament, there's more than 20 different words that are used for the wrath of God. Over 600 passages describe God's wrath in different contexts. When we get into the New Testament, there's two primary words. One is thumas, that is to rush along fiercely or to be in the heat of violence. The other word is orge, O-R-G-E. That is to grow ripe in something, indicating God's continually building and intensifying opposition towards sin. It's the second word that's used in this text. It's orge. Listen, the wrath of God since the beginning of time is gradually building and growing in intensity and in opposition to sin. When you look into this world and you see sin in every direction, and if you watch an award show or you look anywhere on social media and you see people celebrating unrighteousness and many times boldly challenging God. And sometimes in your, your heart, you're almost like, God, how long will you wait? How long will you hold back your wrath? How long will you, you allow them to do this? Just know the righteous anger and wrath of God according to the text is growing in intensity day by day you may wonder like why is God so upset about sin so what if I lie to my friend is it that big of a deal it's just between myself and that friend the reason it's such a big deal is when God says do not lie and we lie it is an offense and a rebellion against him when God says, love your neighbor, and you do things to hurt your neighbor, it is rebellion and an offense against your creator. Our actions are either going to walk in obedience with him or in disobedience and opposition to him. And this passage tells us God's wrath is consistent, and it is controlled, and it is judicial. It, it does not mean that God merely gets angry and there's spurts of wrath from moment to moment, but rather his wrath is controlled and it is growing and it is, it is, listen, it is judicial in how it's going to be exercised. Verse three tells us how bad the situation was for us prior to Christ. Prior to Christ, dead in trespasses and sin. Prior to Christ, alive to the lust of the flesh, alive to rebellion, alive to disobedience. 
prior to Christ, by nature, children of wrath. On July the 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a message entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. After teaching about our sinful state and teaching on God's anger towards sin and teaching about our continual rebellion against our creator, Edwards made a statement that shocked and struck fear in the hearts of his listeners. He said, and I quote, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Here's what that means. If our eternal future were based on our actions, we would all be guilty as charged. We would all split eternity open on a path towards hell. We all sinned. We all fell short. We were all separated from God. None of us could do enough good deeds to make up for the sin and rebellion of our past. We all shot our arrows of righteousness towards the target of God's perfection. And our arrows kept falling short and falling short and falling short. We all strayed from God's path of truth. The pattern of our life was not it was an occasional thing or momentary slip, but rather it it was the habitual, ongoing habit of our life was lived in rebellion because of our spiritual condition, because of the fact we are dead in sins, alive to the lust of the flesh, by nature children of wrath. There was nothing that we could do to buy God's favor, to earn God's favor. There was nothing that we could do to manipulate God into seeing things from our perspective and to kind of not look at those hard things. Each of us stood guilty and condemned and hopeless before God. Here's why the gospel's so good. Look at what it says in verse number four. Here it is. This is beautiful. But God... Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You did not earn salvation, we were unworthy of salvation. Our sinful hearts only beat with the rhythm of rebellion, and yet God still came for us. God is the one who made us alive together in Christ. We could not do it. The reason is dead people cannot act upon themselves. We couldn't even believe the right thing because deceived people could not understand the truth if it's right in front of us. Had God not acted on our behalf, we would all be doomed for eternity separated from our Creator. It is the height of arrogance for anyone to suggest that they deserved salvation. It is prideful for us to suggest God owes me another opportunity. He does not. Listen to what Warren Wearsby said. Humanity's position apart from Christ is dead, disobedient, depraved, and doomed. 
as Jonathan Edwards completed his description of humanity's state apart from Christ, historians tell us people wept uncontrollably. They were painfully aware of their condition before God. And just about the time they could no longer handle the pain, Edwards said, and I quote, but now you have an extraordinary opportunity. A day wherein Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. When Edwards got to this point, the people's weeping turned to rejoicing and shouting. He told people, if you want to receive the gift of eternal life, come to the, floor, the front, come to the altar, and place faith in Christ today. According to historians, people began to crowd the aisles, and they would crawl over top of pews, and they would belly crawl underneath pews, and they were pushing people out of the way in order to get to the altar to give their hearts and their lives to Christ. Here, here's why that's so important. Because somebody needs to understand their true state before God before they see the glory of the gospel. If we ever reverse this order, we're going to be in trouble. You can't teach grace before law. And the redemptive story of God still makes sense. You, you can't teach blessing before depravity. And the redemptive story of God still makes sense. You cannot teach spiritual life without first understanding spiritual death and the redemptive story of God still makes sense. If we ever reverse the order, people do not see the need. They think God owes them something. They think that salvation is a really good option for somewhere else down the road. But when you see it the way God shares it in his word, it should break a person's heart then and there. It should make us in a place that we just, we wake up and we say, thank you, God. We go to sleep, thank you, God. In good times, thank you. In bad times, thank you. When he answers our prayers, thank you. If he delays the answer, it's okay, thank you. If God does nothing else for our lives apart from salvation, that alone is enough to praise him for eternity. It should change how we see these things. It's the order of God's redemptive story that helps us see why the gospel is magnified. If the pieces are connected the right way and the truths begin to sink in, we find that a person's life after they've been changed as one that has lived in gratitude and awe and wonder and thankfulness. And if a person is not yet saved and they hear the redemptive story of God, the Spirit of God uses the Word to grab their heart. It should peel back the layers of pride and deception to the point that the person's saying, that's the only thing I want. It's the good news. I've made this statement before. We'll never know how good the good news is until we first see how bad the bad news was. The news was bad. Spiritually dead. Separated from God. Unable to do anything 
to incline ourselves to God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he's the one who acted on our behalf. I know this is not our normal pattern on a Sunday night. Sunday night is usually a time of deeper study in the word. But I cannot imagine us talking about the gospel at this depth and not giving people a chance to respond. I, I don't know who's in the room tonight. There might be people tonight that this is the first time you've heard that part of the gospel story. And you're hurting right now. You're like, I want things to be right. Just know the gospel story is so good that even as bad as that is, the good news is Jesus came for us. He loves us. He died on the cross, rose again three days later that we might experience eternal life, a reconciled relationship. So I'm going to ask you if you would, just bow with me for prayer for just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. There's going to be two types of people in the room right now. Saved and lost. If you're saved, I'm going to encourage you to take the next few moments and thank God for what he has done in your life. Ask God to stir your heart and your passion for him. Ask God to help you see what this life is like with brand new eyes, not, not dialing it in, not just doing the minimum, but what it looks like to walk in the fullness of relationship with your creator. Today, if you do not know if you have that relationship with God through Jesus Christ, or maybe you know that you don't, but you desire it, you want to know that you're saved. You want to know that your sins have been forgiven. I'm going to lead in a very simple prayer. I tell people all the time, th this prayer doesn't save you. Jesus is the one who has done what is necessary for our salvation. All we're simply doing in a moment like this is we are agreeing with God. We are, we're saying, God, you're right. I was wrong. I thank you for what you've done. That, that's what we're doing in this moment. So if, if you don't know that you have that relationship with God, or you know you don't, but you want it, I'll lead in a very simple prayer. It's between you and him. It would simply be this. Heavenly Father, I know that I've sinned. I know my sin has separated me from you. There was nothing that I could do to make things right. Thank you for sending your son. I believe that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And he rose again that I might have life. As best I know how, I turn from that sin by placing faith in Jesus. Would you save me? Would you give me eternal life? With heads still bowed, eyes still closed. I would love to be able to 
rejoice with people tonight. So for just a moment, wherever you might be, if you just prayed with me, placing faith in Christ, wherever you might be, for just a moment, would you just raise your hand just for a moment? Thank you. Thank you. You may put them down. As we finish out the service, we're going to kind of go in a way very similar to a Sunday morning. There's going to be a final song that we're just singing through. There's also going to be the altar open. I don't know where you might be right now with God. Maybe tonight's just a time that you just say, God, thank you for the reminder of where you found me. Whatever it might be, when I have a final word of prayer, the altar will be open. There'll be some of our pastors down at the front. We're just going to simply finish out the service. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask, Lord, that you would give us unbelievable clarity as to where we are before you. And God, we will thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we just sing this final song of invitation? If people would like to come forward, they can. Just do what the Spirit of God prompts you to do.